For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, it's time to let what we know about God determine how we live for God. With a new heart must come a new life, and Paul tells us now what that life will look like. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, Out with the Old, In with the New. Alrighty, good morning again. With the Lord's help, we're going to finish off uh, Ephesians chapter 4, get to the end of that chapter. We're working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we find our way almost into chapter 5. We'll ask the Lord's blessing now. Heavenly Father, we look forward to these words of life. We recognize that the, the Bible, the Word of God, is just that, the Word of God and not of men. But holy men of God were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit, and you gave them God-breathed words, and we know they are from you, and they are sent to heal our souls and give us life and keep us on the straight and narrow where, where there's blessing and safety and provision. So help us, Lord, to hear with, with ears that can really hear and a heart that can re- truly understand and then put those truths into practice so we can be a blessing to you and to others. In Christ's name, amen. amen. When I worked for Healed College, as I did for some eight years as I was pastoring uh, this very church, um, I taught English and general ed courses, and I also taught resume writing. And along with the resume writing class came an opportunity to help with the internship program. So students there at that vocational college uh, got to do an internship in a local corporation, and I was the go-between. At the end of their time uh, interning, I was the guy who went to hear from their supervisor how the internship went. And so I was there for the assessment time. And now, usually they went fine, but once in a while they did not go well. And nine times out of 10, uh, when they did not go well, this is what I would hear. Well, you know about, let's call him John. Sorry, John, that's what we do. We go to John. Uh, John, you know, he knows his stuff and, uh, you know, completes the assigned tax, uh, text to, to task. <laughs> Oh, and uh, has the appropriate skills and all of that. But there's a problem, and sadly, we won't be extending an offer uh, to hire him uh, because they, you know, he couldn't get along with the coworkers very well, or you know, he just couldn't find the off switch, and he was hard to work with. He. He didn't take correction well. He got his feelings hurt a lot. These kinds of things, you know. Uh, it wasn't that he didn't know how to do the job. It's that he didn't do the job with social skills very well. We call those skills soft skills, right? So you can be pretty good. You can be uh, really computer savvy. But if you're really a pain in the neck, 
you know, it doesn't really matter how much you know about the computer and all the computer languages that you can uh, speak and program. You know what? If, if you're a drain on the team, you're hindering morale and overall productivity. Uh, you, they really uh, could do without you in the workplace. And so uh, here now in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul has already finished his talk about theology. Chapters 1 through 3, packed full of how we should think about God. Now it's time to let the theology, what we know about God, uh, be translated into how we live for God. You see, and so now it's the nuts and bolts of Christian living that we've come upon. And Paul has taken great... Um, measures to talk about the new life. You know, he called us out of darkness. We were dead in our sins. He put a new spirit in us, made us alive. And now with that comes an obligation to the new life. And so he's going to talk, I mean, surprisingly enough, about soft skills that God is interested in. We call them character qualities, uh, but soft skills, character qualities that, well, think about it. We've got a, an employer or a boss. He's got team members. He's got a workplace. He's got a project and goals and timelines and deadlines, right? And so how you do your Christian life with the character, what makes a good church is the quality of the life of the members and how they're living, right? I mean, because you can have a great church show technically but it's how people treat each other and get along with one another inside that makes a church a church really biblically speaking and so to guard that unity and that's the context of chapter four the unity here are some behaviors now he's going to list five pairs of do this don't do this and here's why five times he does it this is bad this is who you used to be. Don't do that anymore. This is who you are now. Do this behavior, right? And he gives a reason for it. There's five of them. And, and so it, it's really convicting. There are things that we all struggle with, uh, but we're going to talk about that uh, this morning. And so let's take a look at that. He's now just said, there's this new community, new humanity God has birthed into the world by the Holy Spirit. And now there's an obligation to live in a new way. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. And in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may be beneficial to those who are listening. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, 
just as in Christ, God has forgiven you. This is the text in its entirety. Within your text, there are five couplets, right? Don't do this, do this. So a negative prohibition balanced off by a positive command and an explanation given why you should comply. And so we're gonna dig those out first, but let's talk first about some theology because there's nothing more damaging than a wrong understanding about why we need to be good. As I've told you very often, it is not good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. If you think that, you may end up there (laughs) because that is not biblical. Saved people go to heaven and unsaved people perish. And let me tell you, we cannot qualify by our good deeds. And good deeds are called for because we've already received eternal life as a free gift. And we are to live those good deeds out as evidence of salvation, not in an effort to gain salvation. If you mess that up, man, you've missed the whole New Testament, really the whole Bible. We've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. He's never once said, be good, be good, be good, or else, never once. I mean, there are consequences for being bad, but once you, (laughs) here's what happens when you come to know the Lord. John 14, the question is, in life, did you become alive or did you remain dead? And if you die dead, You die twice. You die a physical death, and then the second death, which it's called, is an eternal separation with death from life, from God, right? And so the object in this life is not to become good enough. It's to become alive, and that's that's called born again. That's when you trust Jesus, faith alone, and he comes into your heart and gives you this new life that can never die. And this is what happens to you. Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father on on the night he was betrayed in the upper room. I'm going to ask the Father God. He's God the Son. And he'll give you another helper, the Holy Spirit. And he will be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he lives with you and will be in you. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You don't turn over a new leaf. I'm going to start doing this and I'm not going to stop doing that. I'm going to be religious and I'm going to do whatever. No, 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 no. Some of that may happen, but it's as a result of you've got a new presence. God came into you by faith and gave you new life. You told everybody at your baptism when you stood up there and you said, you're standing up there and you're saying, I used to be alive and I used to live this way, but then I died. That old man died, that old person died. And my sins and my shame and my old life. Now the old life is called, uh, you know, the old man, the old life, the old nature or the flesh. Many different ways to say that. But in baptism, it shows us clearly 
That life is over, dead, covered over, washed clean. And up comes this new person who's been made new. You had a supernatural experience. So you've met God and your spirit has come to life and connected to God. And that's why your physical death can do no destruction to you because your spirit has become inextricably connected to the, the spirit of God. And God cannot die. Death cannot stop him. The grave cannot defeat him. And neither will it defeat anybody's connected to his spirit. And so that's what's happened. Now, here's the problem. When he comes in and makes you new, he says, therefore, if anybody be in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Well, you know, basically the old is gone. Your sins, penalties for sins, the old way of thinking, the old you is in fact gone. The new has come, but it's a process which will involve your cooperation. And this is what's meant when he says, take that off. You know, he describes the old way of doing things as a garment. He says, oh, that needs to come off. And you put on the new garment, which is the new life in Christ. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, that's the idea there, that you have to cooperate. I mean, there are other metaphors. He says, that old person, you put that to death. You don't give way to it. You ignore it. You don't embrace that. You embrace the life and you throw away that which belonged to your old nature. The old nature survived conversion. The old heart, the lethal, poisonous, self-centered, sin-laden heart is still in there the Holy Spirit comes in and, and quashes that thing down. And as long as you're filled with the Spirit, walking in his light and truth and reading your Bible, the Holy Spirit presses that down, right? But, but when you are not filled with the Holy Spirit and you're out of fellowship and you're not reading your Bible, you find out, whoa, there's something in me that's fighting with the Spirit of God. Let me show you that little... Uh, the second one, Caitlin, Galatians is a better one here. Let me show you Galatians. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature, the, the, the word there, the flesh, is really the word sarks in, um, in Greek. And it just means raw meat. It just means like the flesh, right? And that's, it's the animal part of us. And the animal part of us that was fully dominating before faith still wants to dominate after faith, but cannot if the Holy Spirit is given full control. Look what he says. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature, the flesh craves. The sinful nature, the flesh wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. You're, you're conflicted. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you're not free to carry out your good intentions. The force within you that you feed and nurture is the force that's gonna win out. And in the expression of your daily Christian life, one more slide, and now the Romans chapter eight. Those who live according to the flesh, you're that animal, passionate uh, drivenness, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance to the spirit, see spirit, flesh, spirit, flesh, 
have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The mind given over to the flesh is hostile to God. So when you're in having a flesh moment, you, you know, you, you're not interested in the things of God, right? It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are, not, are controlled not by the flesh, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. So some people like to say, you know, it was a done deal at conversion. The spirit came in, and now I'm no longer uh, living in the flesh. Well, <laughs> no. The spirit says that you have two natures, uh, one has to be reckoned dead daily, moment by moment, and not by your willpower. You're no match for the beast, and the Lord wants to call it the animal. He calls that the animal. And he says, the Holy Spirit's the only one who's going to put a tight rein on the tongue and deal with all the behaviors that he's about to list. So with that, I think we have a good foundational, theologically sound way of looking at when he says, don't stop doing this, start behaving like that, and here's the reason why. So the first one up for our consideration is about lying. Now, <laughs> therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood, take that coat off, and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For, and here's the reason, for we are all members of one body. And so you'll always see in these five couplets, you will see a negative prohibition, you will see a positive command, and then a reason why. Now, I've, quite frankly, I'm a little bit embarrassed that God has to tell full-grown adult Christians who profess to know Christ and think of themselves as decent, upright, law-abiding citizens to quit lying. Now, I'm embarrassed. I think we should know that and do that without having somebody to say, tell the truth, don't lie. And the only reason the exhortation is in there is because we have a problem with it. You don't tell somebody not to do something that they're not doing. And so since we do it, and we're doing it, and have a problem in stopping it, he says, listen, here's a command. Stop lying, because now that's not who you are. That's not who's in you. You have to be more genuine about how you speak and how you live. The word there, apotithemi, means to lay aside or to cast off or to lay down. And the word in the Greek, love this, for falsehood, you're supposed to throw it away. Anything to do with it. It's, in Greek, it's the lie from the word pseudo, pseudos, where we get the word pseudo, which means fake or phony. Now, why does it say get rid of the lie? You, you want to say, well, which one? Exactly. <laughs> What's the answer? All of them, right? The lie is so much bigger than the fat whopper 
bold-faced lie, right? There's just a wide understanding. It's not just what comes out of your mouth, but because you can live untrue to who you are in Christ, and that's a falsehood. For you to be one way at church and one way at home, for you to be one way when people are watching you and one way when people are not, that's a lie. You're telling a lie. You're misrepresenting God. It's not true. So he says, cast out or cast off the lie. Now, uh, the lie would include, you know, bold-faced lies that unfortunately we reserve for only emergencies. (laughs) And we think that's okay. You know, it was that or, and fill in the blank, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I had to because if I didn't, then... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, and God's like not impressed with that. So um, why do we do that? Well, oh, you know, let me tell you, we, we all have problems. Uh, I was evangelizing a student at that college. I'll never forget it. And I said to him, you know, when someone says, hey, I don't really need Christ, I'm basically a good person. And so you bring out the law. You start asking about the Ten Commandments. Like, okay, you're basically a good person. Now, well, Let's judge you by the Ten Commandments because a good person would keep all of those, right? Yeah. Well, have you ever lied? Because that's one of them. And this dude says to me, full on, face. He says, nope, I've never lied. I don't lie. That's just not who I am. I'm just not a liar. And I said, congratulations. That was your first one. It was a whopper. (laughs) Gosh, I've never lied. What are you, what's wrong with you? Why do we do it? Well, to get ourselves out of a jam, avoid humiliation or embarrassment or unpleasant consequences. Uh, We also would tell a fat lie to manipulate what we want uh, or what we desperately need. Um, And we also will lie to hurt or to get even with somebody who's done us wrong. Now there's the half lie, and you know what they say about a half lie. A half lie, a a half truth, my, my bad. A half truth is a whole lie, right? Yeah, and let me give you an example. Your boss says, uh, hey, did you get around to uh, moving those boxes in the storage room? And you go, yeah, 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 yeah. You mean, yeah, I heard you, I know, I gotta do it. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to have it done by the time you ask me, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's actually, no, no, no. You, you haven't done it yet, but out of your mouth, Christian. I was yeah. Oh, you're going to say, oh, it's just a little, you know, it's just a little, uh, you know, you know what it is? You want to know about rattlesnakes? There's the big ones, right? They're deadly. Did you know a baby rattlesnake? The neurotoxin in the babies is more dangerous than the cytotoxin in the adult. Thank you, Wikipedia. Is, is just a pinch of arsenic okay? I, I don't, just, 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 just a little pinch. Isn't that like I'm drinking the whole glass? You know what happens when you get used to just cutting corners and being sloppy with truth? You know, it gets easier to get bigger and bigger and bigger. He says, that's not you. What are you doing? Stop lying. And then, of course, you know, it also includes uh, untrue actions and duplicitous 
Uh, that means to, to, to be two-faced. And so he says, lay the lie, all of it down. And instead, the positive command, each one of you must speak truth to his neighbor. Uh, neighbor in Bible is code for the persons in front of you, next to you. So the person right now, you have lots of neighbors all right, because they're all right there. And he says, you have an obligation. And here's the point for the reason now. The reason that you need to be a truth-telling, truth-living person is because you are connected to a team. Here's your reason. For we're members of one body. So how are we going to build trust? And trust is built by what? Trust is built by telling truth. Trust is undone by lying. So if you in the member of God's team, and that's what he's talking about, every time you lie, you stab the body. It's a breach against the community of faith that we're all trying to accomplish God's will, but you're dragging it down because you're eroding harmony and morale by being uh, somebody you're not and speaking in a way that you should not. And that's unbecoming of a Christian. One writer put it this way, the greatest breakthrough a Christian can ever have is to stop thinking of himself as an island unto himself, but rather to remember his life and choices, his obedience and sin are either building up God's work or tearing it apart. You are connected whether you attend or not, you are supposed to be a part of a body. And God likens this to a body. So he says, could you please speak and act with a moral obligation to your part in the body? If, if I touch an iron that's hot and my neurons and my hand decides to lie to my brain and say, it's cool, it's, literally, <laughs> it's cool, you know, you're going to get burned. Literally, why? So he says, tell the truth. Stop lying. You build up trust. Strengthen the community. Number two here, he moves to the subject of anger. He says, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. You see the negative prohibition, the positive command, and reason. Right? I love it. So the prohibition, really, usually when you see lists in the Bible of virtues and vices, um, anger's always just said, anger, bad, out. Toss it, get rid of it. Here, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, wants to acknowledge there is an anger that is free of immorality. There is an anger that's right, but it will need to be expressed morally, and within uh, Christian bounds. And so he says, really, in the, in the Greek, it mimics the Hebrew, which is the quote is, in your anger, do not sin. It comes from the Psalms. But uh, it says, really, be angry, but don't sin. In other words, he's allowing that Christian anger is normative, in an evil world where people are suffering, that you can get an upset that's not immoral, but needs to be expressed morally 
or then you've negated the whole deal. Now, I hate even talking about righteous anger because what happens is, is because, you know, uh, we've had righteous anger three times in our lives, all right? But what the temptation is, is to now, the next time you get really angry, you're gonna say, you know what? It's righteous anger. <laughs> You know what? I don't think so. So be careful with that because man's anger is deadly. And he's going to talk a little bit about that. Man's anger does not promote the kind of life God has for us. And that's James. Um, um, I believe it's chapter two. And so he says, watch out for that. You know, so the idea here now, and one writer put it this way. Too few Christians either feel right anger or express it. Uh, when we fail to express right anger, we deny God, damage morale, and allow spread of evil. What's he talking about? When churches are split by two disgruntled members who got their feelings hurt because they were told something that they needed to do, they got their they they got offended, and what did they do? They they destroyed it and an entire work of God with their mouth. Someone ought to be saying, hey, it's the work of God taken down by a disgruntled employee or some gossiping little group who takes half of the church in half and splits it over and goes to the other side of town and everybody's just like quiet watching and nobody says anything, things like that. When, when immorality comes into a home through a careless dad, come on. You're gonna uh, commit adultery with your secretary, sir, seriously, and do that to your wife and your kids. Somebody ought to feel something. Now, how do you express that? You don't insult people. You cannot express any kind of right anger in the wrong way or you're in the wrong. Do you see? How do you express it? Well, you don't cuss at people. You don't damage property. You don't, uh, you're not a vigilante. You don't take the law into your own hands. You don't do revenge. None of those ways work with anger. Well, let me give you an illustration. You know, walking uh, past the Petaluma Public Library when my kids were just precious little cargoes, you know, and uh, we walked by a poster on eye level, right where the kitty door, there's, there's just like uh, kids walked by here, and there was just an obscene poster. And I saw my kid look at it, and I'm, oh, and I turned his head, and, and I was like so angry. Oh, you know how Lot was vexed? That's. That word vexed, we never use that word, but that's what it means. Vexed, upset, distrust. So I went in and I talked to the reference librarian who they know everything, right? So I went to her. <laughs> have you ever talked to one? I don't know how much room you could possibly have to store all that information, but a reference librarian is like a, just an android. They just, <laughs> it's like talking to Siri. She knows everything. I said, what's up with that? You know, I'm a dad and I've got kids. And she goes, oh, yeah, I know. Well, that, that's not the library's doing, sir. That would be the city clerk. And, and, and she goes, hold on, I'll get that number for you. She pulls out a book. She pulls out a book. She goes in the back, pulls out a book. 
She says, here's the number. I'll write it down on a post-it. You know, I love them. I just really, I'm impressed. And so she gives me the number. I call the city office. And I said, you know what? I'm a dad. I just walked by the library. And my kids were defiled. My little kids. I've raised my kids and protected them for years. And in one second, taking them to read, uh, you know, about Barney in the library, I have to see this and explain it to them and all of that. He goes, sir, listen, I've had a couple complaints. Listen, I'm going to take it down. Thank you very much for your call where I'm going to send somebody out there. He sent somebody out the next day and they took it down. Now, there was some anger. It was expressed, you know, firmly, you know, but you cannot be rude. You cannot be insulting. You cannot denigrate. You can't go to the sign. And, and like some Christians think, well, I'm going to righteous anger. I'm going to break that glass and just spray paint over it or something. Come on, man. You should be arrested for that kind of behavior. And we are arrested for that kind of behavior. We, whoever that person could be, right? And so... That's what he's talking about. Nehemiah, we just finished Nehemiah. (laughs) He tells the guys, he just got the Jews straightened up, renewed. They stopped breaking the Sabbath. But they were very tempted because on the Sabbath day, the gates would be open and in came the Lebanese. The Lebanese don't care about the Sabbath. They just care about money, right? So the Lebanese would come in and sell their goods, and the, the Israelites would be tempted to sin. And they were sinning and breaking the Sabbath, right? So he said, I got the fix. I'm going to lock the gates on Friday night. Try selling the goods then when you're outside. So the guys, <laughs> they camped out. And they tried to outlast Nehemiah's resolve, right? So they camped out. They'd come and camp out and just hope that the gates would open up. So they were there the whole night just waiting. And Nehemiah goes out to meet them and says, listen, I told you the gates are shut. He says, if you're here again, I will come out and lay hands on you. <laughs> and it wasn't to pray. <laughs> I'll lay hands on you. What is he saying? He's saying, I will personally see that you are removed from the premises. Why? Because something gripped his heart about the welfare of God's work and people on this earth. Come on. Do you feel anything? Oh, what's going on around you and in, the, in churches and people writing books and Facebook posts and Christianity's dissolving before your very eyes and turning into something that it was never intended to be? And what are you doing about it? I hope you're feeling something enough to write a letter or to, to post something or to stand up to that person or, you know, because you care. You're alive inside. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, don't let it deteriorate, though. And so this 24-hour is not a legalistic thing where, you know, every night you have to make sure you're not angry, although that's a smart thing to do. He's saying, listen, anger is dangerous. Resolve those things. And here's your reason why. An angry person invites the devil to come in and wreak havoc. Satan prowls around looking for someone to devour and he starts with angry people because angry people can kill 
steal, and destroy. That's his thing. And so if he's going to get a vessel that wants to kill, steal, and destroy, he's looking for someone who's hot with wrath because you're just perfect. So he says, you want to get rid of your anchor or you're inviting the, the dude to come on in and have your way and use my voice, use my hands because I'll be a willing uh, instrument in your hands. He says, you don't really want to do that. The third one, If you've been stealing, please stop. Uh, uh, work, get a job, so that you'll have uh, do something useful with the hands that used to shoplift, and now they're actually working, and now have something to share with those in need. I'm just trying to contemporize it for you. All right. Now, prohibition, positive command, explanation. So we're on the third couplet now. Commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. Don't steal or you're going to go to hell. No. Don't steal because you're not going to hell. Okay, one person's happy about not going to hell. (laughs) That's pretty good. Uh, Listen, he's saying, now, if, if stealing, and it's a broad category here, as they all are, was a part of your former lifestyle. It needs to end because yeah, that person has died, okay? And so the person's habit who has died also dies with them in the, wa- ba- the waters of baptism, as it were. Now, the prohibition against stealing is a lot wider than just sticking a pair of jeans in your purse instead of into the shopping cart or walking out of Home Depot without paying for the item. Uh, We're talking about tax evasion is stealing, uh, customs dodging, uh, robbing the government of what's due them. We are called as Christians to pay them their due uh, and to do it willingly and honestly. You know, there's lots of ways to steal, you know, There's overcharging people. I don't know about you, but I've had times where, you know, something was broken. I had to, you know, write a check for, and this unbeliever comes in and and just literally robs me blind, just robs me. I felt like saying, why don't you just, you know, do you want my watch too? Because uh, that was unbelievable. There was no reason for that. No reason for $300 more than, or $500 more. Or when you pull into the gas station in Winnemucca, They know they have you, right? $12 a gallon? And he's like, well, where else are you going to (laughs) go? You know? And I'll come on. You know how much a Slurpee is there? $10 for a Slurpee? No. Price gouging. Oh, the worst of it is, is when the community needs candles or bottled water. Oh, suddenly water is a precious commodity. Let me tell you one that's not in my notes. Or if it's in my notes, I forgot I wrote it down. (laughs) NIV Bibles, unbelievable. NIV, something Zondervan just did this thing. We shall eradicate all vestiges of the NIV 84. You cannot find it online digitally at all, nor can you find them in a bookstore. Somehow, the 84 just disappeared off the earth. Now, if you go on eBay, 
you can buy an 84 leather bound Bible, just like they usually cost, remember, $40, you know, $500 on eBay. Why? Because I'm going to steal from you. Oh, it's not stealing in his mind. His mind is, you know what? These are valuable now. And I just went on Craigslist and that's the going rate. So I'm going to, you know, mm, there's, there's more ways to steal than you can imagine. What about employers who don't pay their employees enough? What about employees who like to play video games and run errands and and shop on Amazon while you're on the clock? That is thievery. You're stealing. So there's lots of ways to steal. Can you not do that on your break? Honestly? He says, so if you used to steal, stop doing it. And I love what he says, your reason why. It's way deeper than, you know, stop stealing. He, he's saying, before you knew Christ, it was all about you. You wanted something, you took it. All right? Right? Now you have a different kind of heart. It's not all about you anymore. Now you've got a heart that cares about people. Right? So instead of that grasping, sticky-fingered greed, that's, that's the kind of life that went with who you used to be. But now you're not that person. Now you're an other-centered person, and instead of taking, you want to be a giver. You want to bless. You want to work hard and say, hey, I've got something to contribute. And, and the joy, I, I wrote it down, oh, the joy of putting something into needy hands rather than taking something into your greedy hands. Oh, there's no comparison to that joy. And so he says, listen, you got to stop stealing because you're, you're not a thief. You're a giver. You're not a taker. You know, you don't go to church and just say, well, the gospel's got to be financed by somebody. I'm glad everybody else is. is well, I came here to get, get, get. And I got my inspiration today. And I know there's an energy uh, bill that needs to be paid. And I know it costs to send missionaries. And I know that there are 10 people who have salaries here. But we'll let other people pay for that. I just come in. I take what I need. And then I go. Malachi has a word for you from the Lord that says, you're stealing from me, saith the Lord. I didn't write that. I have nothing to do with that one. All right, or any of it, for that matter. Okay, you all got really quiet. <laughs> Let me turn to page number four. Let's move from the hands to the mouth. This is a hard one. I know, old boy is right. Here. Get ready, fasten your seatbelts. Don't let any unwholesome, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Here's a reason. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So let's talk about that. So here, you know, he he says the prohibition. uh, You need a filter on the lips. The, The Bible has a lot to say about the tongue and the mouth in our speech. But he says, uh, one of the psalmists says, Lord, place a guard at my lips, man. You know, there's a story about a monk. Oh, back in ancient times, you know, he's in some 
cave up there meditating. And he reads the scripture where James says, you know, keep a tight rein on your tongue. Those who consider themselves religious and don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, your Christianity is worthless. So the dude says, ah, I, gotta, I need time to think before I open my mouth. So he took a smooth stone and he put it in his mouth and his thoughts were, you know, in the time it will take me to lift my hand up, open my mouth, take the rock out so that I can speak, I can be thinking. Is this beneficial? Should I say it? Is it worth saying? And so he said it was very helpful, but he came to a conclusion. There were so many few times that he actually needed to speak that he just kept the rock in there permanently. (laughs) He said, you know, he just got tired of going like this. So he just said, oh, well, I'll just keep it in there. Yeah, well, you know, it's hard. Listen, (laughs) if you don't think words matter, first of all, James, if you're a careless speaker, your your Christian life is worthless. Wow. Jesus telling a group of unbelievers, every careless word you speak will come under judgment one day. Every careless word word will be judged. Jesus is just saying, your life matters, your thoughts matter, and what comes out of your mouth matters. There are books open on that day, books. What's in those books? Well, now we know what part of it's, part of it, part of what's in the books is every careless word. Now, for us who are covered and atoned and washed, we, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall not be put to shame. That would be very shameful to hear every careless word that's come out of our mouth. So as an incentive to unbelievers and conviction, and Jesus did this a lot with his teaching, to show the overwhelming need of a savior and atonement, he would make statements like that. And don't get me wrong, we will give an account for things that we say, but it doesn't end in shame and condemnation. It, it may end in loss of reward, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 15. Uh, But on that day, there's no red faces for us. God will evaluate us in a fitting and right way that will also bring joy, uh, not shame. But uh, our words matter. The Proverbs say your words, life and death, are in the power of the tongue. And James says, watch out. An unregenerated tongue is set on fire by the fires of hell. And it's the most unruly member. Oh, wow. So he says... There needs to be a filter that we restrain, refrain, and and abstain from any words that have a hint of defilement or they're morally soiled or stained in any way. Jesus said it's from the abundance of the heart. So I incorrectly said we moved from our hands to our mouth. It's actually the heart. Jesus told the Pharisees, you know what? It's not a tongue problem. It's a heart problem for, uh, from the abundance of your heart, your lips speak. So like when you slam your hand in the door, we find out what's in there for real, right? I mean, you can fake what's in there a long time, but when you heat the place up with whatever trial or adversity, up from within comes what's really in there. That's the truth. And so he's saying, 
You and the Holy Spirit are at the helm of controlling what is allowed out of your mouth. So if I were taking notes, I would say, do not let, the, the couplet would read, do not let your mouth be a sewer line, but rather let it be a fountain, a freshwater fountain that refreshes. The sewer line defiles. The freshwater fountain, the line refreshes. That's what he wants. And then he gives a great uh, reason for that. The word unwholesome there means rotten. It's used in the Greek for uh, diseased or rotten trees or decomposing fruit. Rotten talk, what does that sound like? Well, take your pick, dishonesty, vulgarity, uh, crudeness, off-colored remarks, insults, just worldly talking and all of that. And so, yeah, words matter. Now, Now, he says, here's the positive command. Here's your filter. Line things up. Do they benefit people? Is it helpful? Will it be helpful for you to know about this situation with this person? Nine times out of ten, you know, it isn't. It isn't helpful to them to know just what happened in your day. In fact, it's unhelpful. If I know something that will upset my wife, but it's happening and there's nothing that I can do about it, I'm not going to tell her. Why, Why should I upset her? You know, or I want to build her up. I want to encourage her. And so it's just the, the time it takes to filter, is this going to be helpful to everybody involved? And know this, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the Holy Spirit is listening to you. And he's either like, wow, awesome. Or he's like, you know, grieved. He's grieved like, how in the world can you represent me who lives in your heart with such vile and base language. How? How is that possible? And that's why we're not supposed to go there. But the rotten talk has just got to stop. He says, you want to be thinking, how can I build this person up? Now, so, so listen to these words. Hey, man, listen. I know that you've been going through a hard time. I know that you've been hurting. But I see Christ in you. You're going to make it. God loves you like the apple of his eye. He's got a plan for you. He's not done with you. He's going to pick you up. He loves you. He laid down his life for you. He's working these things out for you, but you, you, you inspire me by how you live. You're going to make it. Everything's going to be okay. Did you feel that? You guys didn't because I was talking over here, but <laughs> you know. Did you not wish I were turned to you and talking to you? Why? Because don't you feel better over there, somewhere there? I see somebody who I actually was looking at. I don't know you. Hello. And, uh, <laughs> but didn't you feel good? Didn't you feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, do that to people. And stop doing the nitpicking, pulling apart, you know, all of this stuff. Oh, Sarcasm, the word sarcasm, sarks. Flesh, chasm, to tear. You know, you know, you hey, turkey, you big loser, you know, you know. That's fun for a while, but if you hit somebody at the wrong place at the wrong time, oh, don't you hate that? You know, they just lost their job and something, you know, then you don't know it, and you walk in and, hey, loser. Oh, yeah. And the guy's like, uh, yeah. 
be careful with your words because, and, and here's the reason, two of them. One, the Holy Spirit is either going to be at peace with your words that you properly represent the Holy Spirit or you're grieving him. And uh, the second one, uh, the second reason he says, because you're sealed for the day of redemption. What does that mean? It's a great one. He's saying, one of these days, friend, there's going to be a trumpet blast and the whole world's going to hear it and a loud shout from the Lord. And he's going to descend. And the Bible teaches 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 17, that we will be changed in a moment, twinkling of an eye, caught up to see him face to face. The God who spoke and the universe was with eyes that shine with the brilliance of 10,000 suns and you will fit in. Take your place with the spectacular glory of God and the angelic hosts and whatever heaven looks like, there you are. That's your destiny. You're gonna fit in there. You're one of them. Does a person like that use language profane? Does a person who's sealed for the day of redemption where the angels and the glory of God is revealed at the second coming and you're in your spot with your robe and your crown, do your words now match that kind of situation and destiny? Or do your words talk like you have a different destiny? Lastly, it sounds like he's repeating the anger thing, but he's not. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Here's the, the prohibition is don't be a mean person. <laughs> be nice. Be a nice person. What a concept is a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ that you're actually generally a nice guy or gal, all right? And so a gracious person. Don't be mean. Now, now, mean is a nice umbrella word. It's not in the text, but it's a very nice umbrella word for the six unsavory and unpleasant attitudes and behaviors that are listed there. Let's take a look at them. Number one, a mean person by nature is just bitter. And the word there means sour of heart or acrid in speech. Number two there, the word rage and anger are side by side. It's pretty obvious. Rage is that passionate wrath, that tirade that just goes on to destruction. Anger is more of that brooding, settled hostility. And then he says a mean person is, is, is like uh, brawling. They like to brawl. That word in the King James is clamor. We don't really use that word. But people who get excited, raise their voices, and yell and scream. That's the idea. And threats. And why I ought to mortalize you. You know, whatever. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But... <laughs> uh, and then the next word, slander, there isn't the usual word. The word for slander usually is devil, because that's what the word devil means, is to slander, to lie about somebody. And he's always lying about God, right? And so that's the deal there. Uh, this word for slander is uh, blasphemia, 
where we get the word blasphemy, normally we think of blasphemy as uh, insulting God or something sacred. This one is character killing. Uh, to assassinate, to kill with your mouth, to absolutely destroy a person uh, with your lips and your lies and your words. And so, uh, yeah, that's what mean people do. They just can't wait to just sink their teeth uh, into somebody. And then formally, then finally, I should say, every form of malice. The word malice, there's kakia. Very interesting because he says every form of this word, you know what he's saying here is that meanness is like Baskin Robbins. It comes in like 31 flavors. <laughs> There's a lot of ways you can be mean. And malice, malice really means to wish ill on somebody, to hope somebody gets injured, you know, to desire to injure. And, and what's interesting about that, every form of it means that the word malice is pregnant with, with babies that also mean the same sort of thing with different nuances. So if you're mean, there's just, just a, <laughs> it's a disaster. Uh, now, don't raise your hands. Uh, have you ever known a mean Christian? I don't get mean Christians. I really don't. Now I know I'm whispering to you like we're talking about somebody in the room. <laughs> I'm saying I, I understand a lot. I've been around for a while. I'm getting old. I'm going to be a grandpa. <laughs> and, um, but I, don't, I just don't understand a generally not nice kind of mean spirited person who is in the faith. I... I, I don't think the Bible understands it either. So he says, rather, I want you to be gracious. Not mean, but gracious. And the word uh, grace is going to cover over three things. Be kind. That means be nice, be benevolent, be long-suffering, be interested in people. Be a, be a nice person, warm. That's the understanding, warm. And then compassionate. Compassionate there means to sympathize or to empathize. The difference between sympathy, sympathy is to feel sorry for somebody's misfortune. Empathy is to put yourself in their shoes. That's what this word is about. Caring about people, not caught up in your whole self, right? And then the last word is uh, forgiving one another. Now, it's not the normal word there, for forgiving, that we think of forgiving of my sins, forgive. It's not that word. It does mean to pardon, but it really means to, it quote, um, act in grace toward, to be gracious. In other words, you're quick to cut slack, to give grace, to extend mercy and forgiveness, to overlook petty every day, and most of them are, offenses. You're going to overlook that. And you're quick to say, oh, she was just tired. Oh, he, he's just, you know, he, 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 you know, he didn't mean that. You're quick to not take it to heart. Instead of exposing somebody's nakedness, like Ham goes in, sees dad had a bad night, you know, and he forgot to put his jammies on, and he went to bed, he had too much vino, right? And so Noah... Right? And so Ham goes in and goes, huh, 
look at that. I saw him laying there and just painting the picture. And the brothers are like, <gasps> right? The brothers go in, get a blanket, and go into the tent backwards and cover over the nakedness of their father. And too many Christians are busy taking the covers off and ripping it off of all kinds of things. There are things that need to be exposed and brought into the light. No kidding. However, there are a lot of things that should just be covered over graciously and don't need you to be so quick to rip everybody else's blanket off and go look at, take a look at that. You know what? How would you feel if someone was quick with the blanket on your issues? What's the reason you're supposed to not be mean but be a nice person? <laughs> because God has been nice to you. Oh, understatement of the world. He says, as Christ has been gracious toward you. Oh, my word. Multitudes and multitudes of sins. Gone. So much grace to overlook. Can you imagine if he took you to task or me to task for every bad attitude? Oh, my word. He'd be busy. He'd be hiring more angels. <laughs> We'd keep him busy, but instead... He gives us room to breathe and grow, and he's just kind and loving and always receptive and always thinks the best of us. And he says, could you just replicate how I treat you? Uh, we want him to empty the storehouses of grace and mercy upon us in our need when we're flubbing up. Right? But if somebody flubs up and stumbles in front of us, oh yeah, we're like, well, maybe I can forgive you if you do the following three things. <laughs> oh my word. You suck down all of that mercy and grace and forgiveness and pardon from God. And you experience all of that for you. He says, is it asking too much for you to take a little bit of that grace that's been packed into your life from the day you were born until the day you die? If you could just take a pinch of it and just say, you know what? I'm going to let that one go. I'm going to let that one go. Why? Because he's let a lifetime of my own shenanigans go. So all Christian duty and everything I just told you about ought to be a response of gratitude for having experienced salvation, a changed destiny from hell to heaven, a crown, <laughs> a throne, he says. He promises these things instead of perishing, really? Shouldn't we be the happiest, nicest people in the whole wide world? And, and, and wouldn't it have to take a lot to tick us off about God's loved people? When someone ticks you off and they're a Christian, can you just remember and can I just remember how much Christ loves that person and what he has in store for them and that he died for them? He shed his blood for that person that you're about to chew up and chew out. He says, Come on, get rid of all of that vitriol, all of that bitterness. Stop being mean. There's no more reason to be mean. Because you've been forgiven. And with that grace and forgiveness, God expects you to pass that on. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We give you praise, Lord, that we, we can't do any of this by ourselves. Help us to learn how to let the Holy Spirit put the old down and lay it aside and embrace the new to have life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.